And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We were really excited this month. We've got a fantastic lineup. In fact, we've got a kind of a multi-episode arc uh, series. theme series. Yeah, absolutely. Was, we don't do a whole lot of series in this uh, podcast, but I'm kind of excited. So Every we're going to get... Every we get something so significant, we got to pause and just really dive deep. Exactly. And that, to me, is one of the great things about this podcast is we can... We can jump and shift with the times. So anyway, uh, Michael, tell them who our special guest is and kind of where we're going here for the next couple episodes. Let me first tell you about what is happening, the event, and that is the publication of a book this spring, spring 2024, uh, titled G.I. Butler, An Honest But Misunderstood Leader. And that is written by none other than Denis Fortin. Now, Dr. Fortin comes with, uh, and welcome to the Pilgrimage Podcast, Denis. Thank you. Uh, and I want to tell you just a little bit about his background. He's a French-Canadian and uh, spent time in ministry, uh, explored scholarship, and has been here at Andrews University at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary teaching for a number of years. He's been the uh, former dean mm-hmm. and uh, now continues uh, teaching as well as he has a passion for research and writing. And so his specialty, Adventist theology, Adventist history, has written uh, copiously, and I consider him a mentor because uh, in my graduate and my academic formation uh, came alongside not only taking some classes and seminars but working on the Ellen White Encyclopedia. Mm. Uh, he and Jerry Moon are the the main editors and let me kind of come alongside and just kind of help and and a lot of writing and researching I learned from just observing how how you did that Denny and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for your friendship as well as your expertise as as a scholar in our church. So mm-hmm. thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be with the two of you here this, today. <laughs> I, I, I have to echo I some of... I believe we uh, no, I know. get to be here together. It's, huh? it's a great setup, and I echo yeah. a little bit of what you said there, Michael, as mm-hmm. a, a, a figure in academia. Dr. Fortin's been yeah. formative uh, in early classes when we were in seminary, but also uh, he was a member of my dissertation committee. That's right, which last you couple just ago. defended. Just uh, defended. Yeah. So, so he this is, is kind of a reunion of sorts. I think he has helped in multiple, huh? yeah. <laughs> yeah. multiple ways he's helped us through here. So yeah, I'm excited for this one. Absolutely. So, you know, let, let's begin with um, Butler, you know, and talk to us just a little bit. I mean, you've obviously been researching and studying Adventist history for quite some time. Uh, you know, some of your early work, I think your dissertation was on um, early Adventism in, in, in Quebec and in Canada and so on. Uh, and your research has led a lot of different directions. And now we have this major new monograph on Butler. So talk to us, how did you become interested in Butler to the point where you decided, hey, I actually want to write a biography, uh, which this is an extensive biography. So talk to us a little bit about your journey and how this happened. Well, it's it's very uh, casual mm-hmm. and not that s- spectacular. Uh, George Knight, as you know, had sure. been the general editor of a series of Adventist uh, pioneer biography, uh, about 15, 20 or so, so far have mm-hmm. been published. And uh, many years ago, he asked me, would you want to write the one on Butler? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how it came about. <laughs> so kind of very I mean, casually. I mean, very yeah. casually, uh, a lineup of people had already been uh, decided upon. Mm-hmm. 
and this one needed to be assigned. By then, I had uh, almost finished the work on the, bio, uh, the Ellen White Encyclopedia, I think. And uh, I, I said, well, why not? I think that would be fantastic. He's an interesting scholar, uh, and church leader. Not only want, uh, you know, I did not want to have to work on a biography simply for the fact of doing a biography. But this one, Butler himself, uh, he wrote a number of things while he was a pastor or GC president that had to do with theology. His views on inspiration, his views on leadership, uh, you know, uh, his views on Ellen White and the, the gift of prophecy in the Adventist church. <clears throat> so I thought it would not be only doing a historical biography, but it would also be a theological biography. And that's why I think I, I got interested in doing this one. Took a whole lot longer than I thought, though. But, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm glad I, I delved into it. Sure. Yeah. So tell us, for the listeners who may not be familiar with G.I. Butler and as familiar with maybe Adventist history in general, uh, who was Butler and why should we care? Well, Butler, uh, where do we start? 1834. Sure. He's, he's born in 1834, so we're getting close to 200 years ago. Mm-hmm in a little village in central Vermont, Waterbury, Vermont. And he is one of the sons. Uh, it's a big family, one of the later ch- uh, children of the family. And um, his family is Millerite. Mm-hmm. They belong to the Millerite movement of the late 1830s, 1840s. Uh, his home, where his father is, uh, Ezra Pitt Butler, is uh, a hub for Mellorite activities mm-hmm. during the Mellorite movement and also a few meetings with the early beginnings of Sabbatarian Adventist after the Mellorite movement. Mm-hmm. So that's where he comes from. So he's a Yankee, so to speak, and he's <laughs> very proud of that, of that uh, heritage of being uh, true to duty, honest and faithful to his word and to what he believes. Uh, that's a strong part of, of, of who he is as his culture. I, I'm just thinking about this. He, he probably had a Yankee twang when he was uh, talking, I, I'm guessing. I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's from Vermont, you know, yeah, sure. ru- rural farmers. Uh, pr- probably, <laughs> why not? <laughs> he's from the Northeast, for sure. Right. Um, so that's where he's from. Uh, his father, Ezra Pitt Butler, and uh, his mother, Sarah, uh, are Millerites, early Sabbatarian Adventists. He grows up in that milieu, becomes a little fed up, I would say, maybe it's a strong word, but disheartened, disillusioned, might be a better word, after the Millerite movement is over, and he sees the early Sabbatarian movement beginning. He is a little disillusioned with religion. There are too many fanatics in that milieu where he grows up. And basically, he shrugs his shoulders toward his faith. His family, by the way, grew up Baptist. So he's a Baptist family Mm. heritage. So they're Millerite Baptist. And kind of gives up on faith and becomes agnostic, so to speak. He calls himself an infidel. So for a number of years, he makes no profession of religion. In 1855, 56, His family moves west. They sell everything in Vermont, and they go to Iowa. A number of New England Adventist pioneers, Sabbatarian Adventist pioneers, have decided to move to Wacom, Iowa. 
His family moves to walk on in 1856. The John Andrews family, the Loughboroughs, <clears throat> and uh, uh, the Edwards have already moved in 1855. Hmm. Butler is already in the West, beyond the Mississippi, by 1854, probably. It's a little hard to know exactly. Uh, he is in Wisconsin, Minnesota. He's part of a surveying team of people. He lives among Indians. He looks very ruffian, long hair, <laughs> kind of. Somebody describes him as having long hair, dressed like an Indian. I remember seeing a picture, but did you ever find the picture? No, I never did. Mm. Maybe somebody listening knows where this picture is. At one time, there was a picture. So maybe someday we'll find it again. Yeah, very, very early picture of George Butler in the eight, yeah. early 1850s. Yeah, he, hmm. he looks pretty rugged. He looks very rugged. Long beard, long mm -hmm. hair, a hat. Uh, he was even a part of an Indian commune or an Indian reserve? Or? He was, yes. Yeah. He, yeah. he lived among them while right. he was working for the uh, surveying team. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but it just so happens that um, he has some fond memories of James and Ellen White. Hmm. So James and Ellen White will visit his home right after the Millerite movement a couple times while he's still at home. In Vermont. In Vermont, okay. uh, in yeah. Waterbury, Vermont. And he's very impressed with them. Very impressed particularly with Ellen White. Hmm. She's fairly young. She's about seven years older than uh, Butler. So in her 20s, he gets acquainted with, him, with her. He is... Um, Surprised by how pious she appears to be, sincere, kind, uh, not imposing as a personality. And that's what he remembers of her, the first encounters in his home in Vermont. Then everybody goes to Iowa. And then we may remember the story of James and Ellen White going to Iowa to visit the colony there in 1855 during a snowstorm you know the mississippi river is mm. so so and they cross it anyway right, right. on a sled <laughs> he meets her there as they as he arrives to walk on from the north and as they leave to go back east that that is the whites he meets them there on mm. on the road and again she asks about him she's kind toward him and that has a huge impact on him we could come back to that. Yeah, I think later. we're going to explore the we'll relationship explore with that Ellen White later. a yeah, little yeah. bit more. Yeah, the winter meetings. <laughs> yeah, the winter meetings. So that that happens in 1855, 56, um, and then slowly he becomes a Christian. He gives his heart to Jesus and uh, begins to live and walk on. Gets married, mm -hmm. gets married, and uh, to Lentha Lockwood, who is. Uh, family that is also in the western part of Illinois, not too far from Wacon. He marries Lentha. Lentha is a number of years older than he is, seven to nine, I think, years older mm. than he is. But they love each other. Uh, he marries her. He settles in Wacon. is a school teacher for a year or so. And then he becomes the elder of the Sabbatarian Church in Wacon. Quite a quite a shift, honestly. To yeah, <laughs> go from a, disillusioned, you know, not so not so keen on the Millerites and everything else, but now he's leading the church. Now he's leading the church. He has a conversion experience as a as a young adult. Hmm. Uh, his Baptist faith, you know, comes into play there to give your heart to Jesus. That's how he was raised. Yeah, that's how the family was raised. Um, and within a year or two, 
of being the elder of the church in Wacon, he becomes the conference president of the Iowa conference. <laughs> Talking about a shift. <laughs> we are in the early, uh, yeah. early 1860s here, late 50s, early 60s. There has been a split in the church there in Wacon, the Snook and Brinkhoff uh, split. Mm. Uh, there's this disillusioned, disaffected uh, couple of ministers who leave the church, very sarcastic and they were kind of like the conference leaders, right? I mean, it was they like a the coup of the conference, right? They were the conference leader, the president and the secretary treasurer. Mm -hmm. Both yeah. of them leave, you know, the Sabbatarian group. And now they're wondering who's going to take over, at least to lead the congregation, give some spiritual leadership. And they ask young George Butler, <laughs> who is just an elder of a local church, just to become the conference president. Now, now is this a, is a, a warm body will do? Like, what kind of scenario is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just, yeah, probably that's what happens. <laughs> um, James White puts a little bit of pressure on him to become the, uh, the conference president. To note, that will be of interest to those loving Adventist history, he is not an ordained minister. Mm. <laughs> he is an ordained local church elder, elder. Yeah, yeah. and he becomes the conference president. Now, if any activities need to be done in the conference by an ordained minister, yeah. there's already two or three that are there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Loughborough is there, or um, I forget some of them. Is Bordeaux is there also for a little mm -hmm. bit? Uh, Daniel Bordeaux is there for a little bit of time. Anyway, they would do. You know, the baptisms and yeah. the Lord's Supper, not him. The conference he, couldn't even... Well, he, he's not ordained. He's yeah, not ordained. But, but this That's is just not kind of crazy unusual. This is not unique because Albert Belden, for example, is another early Adventist significant personality who shows leadership. He's ordained as a local church elder, but he's never ordained, at least while he's conference president, as an ordained minister. So this seems to be kind of like a pattern, which is very interesting. Leadership responsibility and ordination are not necessarily... One and the same. Bylaws weren't there yet. <laughs> <laughs> not at the time. Yeah. yeah. Not at the time. I mean, they wanted leadership. Mm -hmm. They wanted somebody to be able to organize the meetings, sure. organize the camp meetings or uh, regional meetings. No camp meetings yet, but uh, regional meetings to be able to give some supervision, decide who goes where, mm -hmm. to do evangelism and so on. So he's able to do that. Sure. That's not too difficult of a job when you've got only a few churches mm. and not, you know, just a few hundred members. Yeah. It's okay. He does that. Mm -hmm. But he's ordained a couple of years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So, and, yeah. and then he becomes... So being conference president could be preparation for ordination. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly In that not case, the way it's working today. <laughs> if that was the case today, count me out. That's All right. right. Oh, mercy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so that's what happens. Um, so in 65 there, he becomes conference president. He is the conference president for a few years. Seven years, in fact, until 1872. Hmm. And then he becomes general conference president. At the December meeting of 1871 of the GC session in Battle Creek, Michigan, he cannot attend. Mm -hmm. I think he's sick, uh, flu or something. This so is a running theme <laughs> at major meetings for Butler. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see I that in a second. Come back but I'm hearing this. Too. Yeah, all right, all right. All right. <laughs> so uh, he's 37 years old. He's been in church leadership for about seven years. And um, their folks in Battle Creek realized that James White really needs a break. <laughs> he's been sick. He's had a couple, two, three, maybe uh, strokes. 
uh, by then. He's overworked. James White wants to pull off, pull back a little bit. Everybody agrees to that. Who is going to take his place? And given also the dynamics within the group, which we need, really need to talk about a little later. So in absentia, they vote George Butler as the GC president. Mm. I suppose within a week or so, a few days, he gets either a telegram or, or he gets a letter. You've been elected GC president. <laughs> that, that's a, a strong tradition <laughs> with every nominating committee I've been on, so I get that. <laughs> you get that. What's the first reaction? No way. Yeah. <laughs> shock. No, shock. Complete shock. Complete <laughs> denial. Complete, no, I'm not going to do that couple reasons why he's not going to do that. He refuses to be the general conference president. First reason, he feels he's too young, mm -hmm. 37, which is in those years not too young, but as far as also himself as a believer, he feels he's been an infidel for too long to be able to be the leader of a church group like this one. He does not sense personally in his own spiritual journey with God, he does not sense he has the values, he has the heritage, he's a Millerite kid mm -hmm. after all. Yeah. But because of his straying away from the faith, he says he is not equipped to be that kind of a leader. Conference president, okay, maybe, but not general conference president. That's the first reason. Second reason, up to about October, November 1871, so a couple months earlier, Ellen White had been saying over and over, that the leader of this church is James White, even though he is sick and should be replaced. She has been saying and repeating over and over in her testimonies and public meetings that James White is the appointed leader for the church. Well, unless there is a testimony that comes from Ellen White saying that for now, for a period of years, we're going to do a different scenario, George Butler said, I can't do it. Because the word of the Lord is, James White is the appointed leader. <laughs> so unless there's mm. a vision from Ellen White or from God to Ellen White or a testimony of Ellen White to undo this, he's not going to do it. Well, James White is upset. Uh, he is pleading with him. You've got to take it, you know, screws the, a little bit uh, as much as possible. And then, then finally, Ellen White tells him, it's okay, go ahead and take it. <laughs> Uh, and then finally he recants mm -hmm. and takes it. He will be GC president uh, for about two and a half years. So from, if we count December 71, right. although mm -hmm. he really begins to be acting only in February of yeah. 72 until August of 74. So about two years or so, a little bit, about two and a half, he will be the GC president. Then James White becomes president again to George Butler's relief very happy to go back to Iowa just to be a pastor, to do evangelism. Uh, time goes on. Um, he is, again, Iowa conference president for a number of years. 1880, uh, James White dies. Mm -hmm. uh, no, he, 81. 81. He dies in 81. But in 1880, there again, James White is very sick. Yeah. Needs to be released right. one more time. But by then, Ellen White is working behind the scenes to make sure that at the next GC session, James White is not elected. So she's working behind the scenes because she feels he will go ahead and take another leadership. And then she pleads with Butler to take it. 
Butler is really the person to become general conference president. So he becomes president in 1880, mm -hmm. in the summer of 80, and then uh, in early August of 81, uh, James White dies. So de facto now after that, George Butler is the leader of the church. Mm -hmm. He is by far the one that has the most experience among the church leaders there, mm -hmm. uh, with J.N. Andrews, uh, Loughborough, you know, and a few others, Haskell, that are still there. But he becomes the General Conference until 1888. Uh, we could talk about 1888 a little later. In a, uh, I think we will need I, to. I, I think yeah, we will yeah, yeah. that. We're going to get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Let me just continue the history yeah, of sure. his biography, yeah. the, the big lines. So just to pause for a minute. So for those that are listening, General Conference President, uh, pitch hitter, uh, both as church president and as conference president. So really we're talking about one of the most significant leaders in the 19th century in the formation of our church. He is. Okay. He is. He's been there right from the beginning. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, the son of a Millerite family. Okay. So he is part of the pioneers of the church. He understands the church. Gotcha. And that's why it will become important when we talk about the 1888 controversy to understand the heritage he comes from. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. Sure. So um, in 1888, uh, 86 to 88, uh, uh, George Butler uh, suffers from a progressive burnout. And by the time... The summer of 1888 arrives, he is really sick. Mm -hmm. uh, he tells us he's got a fever of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, that's really high, mm -hmm. uh, almost every day. So he's got brain issues, he's got uh, health care issues, he's got mental health issues. And so he sends a message to the folks in Minneapolis, I cannot be reelected, it will be the death of me if I do in fact. A medical doctor has said to him, if you don't step away and take a break, you're not going to live much longer. Mm -hmm. So a doctor tells him that. So he is not re-elected in 1888 to his relief. And then he will take a break from leadership. In fact, a very long break until 1901. He goes to Florida at first from the invitation of some uh, believers, not church members, but believers in, uh, in Florida. He accepts their invitation to spend the winter with them. So in mid-December 1888, he leaves Battle Creek with mm -hmm. his wife, mm -hmm. and they go to central Florida, Bowling Green, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Florida, lives there with a family, uh, and uh, the Kecks. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, for our listeners, that's like uh, roughly two hours west of Orlando, kind of. South of Orlando. Orlando. Yeah, mm -hmm. south, yeah. So just south of mm -hmm. Orlando, mm -hmm. about an hour and a bit uh, east of Tampa Bay. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that generally, it's very rural. It's in the central part of Florida. Mm -hmm. It's the, uh, the fruit belt. Uh, it's the citrus uh, region, so oranges and lemons and you name it, all kinds of fruits and vegetables. We need someone to make that an Amethyst heritage site. That's the heritage site I would sign <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, right. No kidding. <laughs> it, it is still a beautiful place, although yeah. now they've got all kinds of uh, mines that are happening. They're phos phosphate mines, I think. They're Interesting. Just, uh, yeah. Digging down for some salt. So anyway, he's in Florida. So he's in Florida. He will spend uh, a number of years there, many, many years in Florida. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is his... Uh, major home mm -hmm. after that. He, bu uh, he buys land, builds a house uh, with his wife, Lenta. They live in Florida all this time. But within about two years, Lenta has a major stroke. 
she becomes paralyzed for the entire right side of her of her body. Mm. Wow. And um, so George Butler, although he would have loved to begin slowly to re-enter ministry, because after a couple of years he feels stronger, the mm -hmm. burnout is a little bit over. Yeah. Uh, he needs to become the caretaker for Lantha. Mm. He has no choice, and he takes care of her until she dies uh, in 1901. Mm. And uh, we'll do a little bit of evangelism in the region. Um, it sounds very localized. Very localized, yes. Um, he tries a little bit to go to into South Carolina and a few places in Florida to do evangelism. Mm -hmm. Lantha comes along, but it becomes too hard. And the colleagues simply tell him, you know, this is too difficult for Lantha, given her condition. Yeah. They live in a tent, and she's half paralyzed. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult. Uh, so yeah. finally, he gets the message, and he simply goes home and takes care. For a long time there in the late 1890s, we have almost no records of anything that happens to the Butler family. Mm. Uh, no letters, not much correspondence. Mm -hmm. Then in 1901, she dies in November, and then within two or three weeks, he is elected Florida conference president. <laughs> People have known for years that yeah. the moment Lentha is not going to be there, he will re-enter ministry. He's just dying to do that. But he loves her, will take care of her. That's the priority. Will not give uh, time to anything else. Family first. I mean, I Family that. first. I respect that. that. Spouse yeah. first. Yeah. yeah right. big, big time for him. Yeah. That's really, really big for him. Spouse first. So he does that. Um, so that's in December of 1901. Mm -hmm. Early January 1902, the Southern Union Conference has its first constituency meeting. In the interim, Robert Kilgore has been the president the first president of the Southern Union, but now they're going to have their first session of the Union. He is elected <laughs> president of the Southern Union. Yeah. So he's not unknown down there. Oh, no. Like, he's, he's not. not living in obscurity. No. Yeah. yeah. No, he's not living in obscurity. Okay. Writing articles for the Review and Signs of the Times occasionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know him. Everybody knows him. Yeah. People go visit him, in fact. Sure. So he becomes <laughs> union president in 1902. Mm -hmm. He will be president of the union until January 1908, mm -hmm. so six years. And then full retirement happens after that. By then, he's remarried. Mm -hmm. Who did he get remarried to? Uh, so in 1901, he gets remarried to a widow, uh, Elizabeth Work Granger. Granger is her married okay. name. She's the wife or the widow of William Granger who had been a missionary uh, to uh, Japan before hmm. that, president of Hillsburg College in uh, California. Okay. He dies in Japan. She moves back to uh, the Santa Helena uh, area of uh, California, and he gets acquainted with her at some GC meeting that happens in California. They correspond, and look and behold, uh, they get married uh, in the, the fall, October, I think, of uh, 1907. Oh, yeah, it's kind of quick, actually. Yeah, it's kind of quick. I mean, they've been <laughs> corresponding yeah. perhaps for about uh, about uh, about six months to a year. They've been writing to each other. Pen pals, yeah, and, makes uh, sense. Pen pals in those years. <laughs> the, the original uh, uh, online dating. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the original one. And they will live, uh, and then they really retire. He, he lives, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, where the Union Conference office is, finally, and goes back to his home 
to his house in Bowling Green, Florida. Mm. They both do. And they really become farmers from 1908 to uh, until the end. Uh, in, 19, in 1916 or so, uh, Elizabeth is sick. She's having issues of some kind, not too sure what is happening. She's got surgery that happens in Orlando. She does not really recoup from that. Mm. There's too much of something in the climate in Florida, so she goes to live with her daughter in California. So for about a year or so, year and a half, they're not together because of health issues. But he remains in Florida, tries to sell the house, and it's not happening. He would have moved probably with her back to uh, California. And then uh, he dies uh, in 1918. He is attending uh, some meetings of the General Conference in California and uh, suffers uh, cancer, I believe. He's been suffering from cancer for about a year, maybe, maybe two years. And then while he is there, uh, he dies in Hillsburg, uh, California. Mm. He will be buried in Bowling Green. Uh, Florida, beside his first wife, Lantha, and also right. beside his sister, Aurora. So we have kind of mm -hmm. some historic sites in central Florida. So any listeners down there need some pathfinders to go find an Adventist heritage yes. site, we've, we've got some in Florida. Yeah, we got some in Florida. Bowling Green, the cemetery there in Bowling Green has the tomb uh, mm -hmm. of uh, George Butler, his first wife, mm -hmm. and then his sister, also Aurora. And some of the other uh, Adventist pioneers of uh, Bowling Green are I think there. The Keks that the we were mentioning. Yeah. They're right beside. Mm -hmm. Right, it's next to them. Yeah. right next to them. <laughs> so that's basically the history of uh, George Butler. Quite a, quite a, a history. Very much involved in a number of issues. We'll come back to those. Sure. Uh, but he is somebody to be remembered. Um, mm -hmm. Long legacy from Butler. Really, a, as, a, as a, an a, honest man, yeah. a very dedicated church leader who worked for the church for a fair number of years. By the time he died, he, he was one of the ones that had among the most experience in the denomination, mm. in leadership positions, conference, sure. multiple conferences, Iowa, Missouri, Michigan, Florida, conference president, union president, GC president, two terms. Yeah, lots of experience. Uh, dozen, hundreds mm. of articles for the review mm. that he wrote. So, uh, so he's kind of a point person in terms of leadership, but also dealing with crises yes. in terms of bringing stability, personnel issues. I mean, he's just, he's one of the, the foremost individuals in, in early Adventist history, if I'm hearing you right. That's right. Yeah. We, you know, we know about some of the others, James White. Yeah. But James White died in 1901, uh, 1881. 1881, 1881. Yeah. <laughs> 1881. And, and so was a, a leader from the 40s until 81. So that's about right. 40 years or so. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. Butler was a church leader, really, from the 1860s until he died almost. 1918, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 1918. Now, he was in retirement, but yeah. he still had influence. Had influence. People are writing to him, asking for advice, right? Yes, I mean, he, he's... he writes articles for mm -hmm. the review. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in he's... terms of theology, he's also a leading theologian? He's a leading say? theologian. I mean, not of the same caliber as Jan Andrews, sure, for example, but... or Joseph Bates. Yeah, but he's in the conversation. <laughs> but he's and, in the conversation, Yeah. For sure. And would you say influential? Very influential. Yeah. In fact, the last series of articles he writes for the review is on the importance of the gift of prophecy within the Sabbatarian Adventist movement. Mm. That's a theme we're going to come back to. We'll come we're back we're to talking that about this, so for our listeners, this is actually going to be a three-part series. So we're going to have, uh, I think, our last episode, a third episode in the series. We're going to really unpack this relationship yeah. more with Ellen White. But, but for the moment, um, we've been talking, uh, kind of going, doing a biography. 
Now, you've done a lot of theology, you've done the encyclopedia, you've done a lot of like shorter biographies. Reflect it for us for just a moment, the, the process and this whole thing of, of writing a biography. We found out how hmm. George Knight had asked you to do this as part of the series, but, but now that you're on the other side of it, reflect, us, uh, f- reflect with us for just a moment about what that was like in terms of writing biography um, how was that for you? I mean, this is an important dimension. Now we're talking about amateur historiography, right? Yep. But reflect for us just a moment that, that process of doing biography, because one thing I think that's really important, and we talked about this a little bit before the show, is in terms of biography, you're trying to get inside his head. Yes. So this is not like, although he, you do deal with Ellen White and other people, this is, would you say, Butler's perspective? Yes. And, and so talk to us about that. When George Butler, uh, when George Knight, yeah, too many Georges. When George <laughs> Knight uh, invited me to do this biography, yeah, he gave me a counsel, and he sure. said, "Okay, you're going to do it. Fine, do your best. But as you prepare to do this biography, I'd like you to read biographies, okay, and read good ones. Good mm-hmm. advice, yeah, very good advice. So I read a number of the Adventist pioneer biographies, but mm-hmm. I also read biographies of United States presidents. Mm-hmm. So Washington, Adams, Jefferson, you know, a, a number of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, some of them are very good. You know, Joseph mm-hmm. Ellis, for example, who mm-hmm. wrote uh, The American Sphinx on, right. on Jefferson. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one. I read that biography and I said to myself, that's what I need to do with Butler. Mm-hmm. See, Ellis in his biography of Thomas Jefferson is not only a historical here are the events, and here's how they connect. Mm-hmm. But it is also an interpretational of the, of, of the politics in the head of Jefferson and how he related to uh, Franklin, Washington, and Adams, and many of the others. So there's an interpretation that happens at the same time. And I said, that's what needs to happen with Butler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not only describing the events like we just did for the last half an hour, but also interpreting the events from his perspective. Sure. Nice. So that's why I came to the subtitle of the book. Mm. George I. Butler, an honest but misunderstood church leader. Mm. So talking about his honesty as a man, how he did things, made decision on the basis of honesty, integrity, integrity to himself, mm-hmm. integrity to the movement he understood, integrity to... Uh, what he thought Adventism is all about, to be faithful to that. So that's the core of, I think, who he is as an individual, Mm -hmm. personally and also as a church leader. Mm -hmm. And then misunderstood, because I think the historiography of Adventism toward Butler has been been faulty. Mm. You know, we've branded him as being uh, stubborn, unconverted, legalistic, legalistic. Because mm. yeah. of 1888, right? I mean, really... Uh, everything around 1888, you know. So so let me pause for just a moment, because it seems to me, because we've been so caught up in theological controversies in the 20th century, and those have their own story, and we could talk about those another time, but but all of those other later stories were so obsessed about one, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it is important, the whole 1888 drama, but how people interpret that sometimes is so tunnel vision that, that then we cast one person in only a very narrow lens. That's am, right. I, am I getting yep. that right? I that's mean, what's happening. Okay. And I think that's what happened with Butler. Okay. His perspective, his side of the story 
has been maligned. Yeah, it almost doesn't get told. Does not get told. And in this biography, as I looked at how Butler reacted to some of these or how he dealt with in, 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 and also lived with some of the issues he had to deal with, yeah. I thought to myself, his perspective has to be told and, and, and why he took the stands he did mm-hmm. in 1886-88. Yeah. Why is it that he was so adamant that Jones and Wagner were wrong and that Ellen White was wrong in supporting them? Yeah. I wanted to tell his side of the story. I hope I was faithful enough to do that, and that will make the book interesting. So sure. I wrote the biography from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to get into his head, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful, but also tired and exhausted. <laughs> and exhausted. <laughs> Maybe a sense of relief. And a sense of relief because okay. to get into his head, I had to read hundreds of letters. Yeah, He was just uh, prolific. He is a prolific writer. Uh, there are some years where he easily wrote 50 to 70 letters. Mm. And not letters of two pages, <laughs> letters of 20 to 30 pages. Oh, my word. And that's all handwriting. And that's all hard. handwritten, uh, not mm. typed. Now, I have a question for you. This is a, <laughs> so pragmatic, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> pragmatic question. As you read his letters more and more, did you find it easier? I mean, if I just brought in a random butler letter that just gets discovered I could read it pretty easily then I could read it you spent enough time I spent enough time I could read it now yeah and very soon AI will be able to help us do that 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 is the hope for every good historian yeah because there's uh, millions of pages of of handwritten documents in the archives but we're thankful that you figured out how to read it (laughs) and and took that time to really unpack it because this is really atrocious handwriting by the way oh well worse than Ellen White you have my sympathy and that's actually pretty hard (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness well uh tell us uh maybe before we just wrap up this episode uh you know when you are getting in someone's head and you've studied Adventist history for as long as you have I mean this has been a passion for you talk to me just one just as we kind of wrap up on was there something that really surprised you you didn't really know that about him of, of kind of just human interest that 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 you didn't know about, but now kind of coming through like, wow, I, I just never had any idea that that was what was going on. Uh, his honesty. Okay. I, I really did not know that. His mm-hmm. integrity. Sure. Okay. That that was a, a good surprise. As, as I that he was trying to that. act with. Con- very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And that, you know, I, I did not, and nobody knows that about him because yeah. of the way history has been told from mm-hmm. somebody else's perspective. Mm-hmm. He was an honest man. Sure. Uh, he wanted to be faithful. He wanted to be a faithful Adventist. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, true to his faith in the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. He is a man of faith. He is a man that is truly a believer in Jesus as his Savior. That has not been said enough about him. Yeah. Uh, that is also nice to have found that out. Refreshing. Very re- refreshing. A man also really dedicated to his family. He loved mm-hmm. his children. Mm-hmm. His daughter uh, that died at the age of about 14, 16, no, a little younger. Teenager. A te- early teen. Early teen. He was in California when she died. Mm-hmm. She, some kind of fever she got through mm-hmm. or something. She didn't survive it. Annie, her name is, mm. um, devastated by that for a long, long time, really grieving the loss of, of that daughter. Two twin sons, fraternal twins, love them dearly as well. 
uh, loved his wife, Lantha, very, very deeply, deep love. He's a family man. He mm. loved his friends and family. Sure. He's a faithful friend, mm. will mm. not turn on on anybody. So it, it, I was delighted to find those human aspects of, of his personality, of his life. Mm. One, one last question, uh, and we need to wrap this up. Uh, our listeners here who've been listening, now they're saying, hey, I'm ready to buy your biography. Tell us one more time the title and where can you find this book? Well, G.I. or George I. Butler, An Honest But Misunderstood Church Leader. It will be available from Pacific Press, mm -hmm. probably on Amazon. Amazon, and, uh, Kindle. Kindle. and mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I suppose Kindle. Yeah. And all of these platforms uh, mm -hmm. will likely have it. Uh, when will it come out? I'm still hoping. Uh, sometimes in the spring uh, of 2024. So watch for that, listeners. Yep. You know, uh, save that in your Amazon shopping cart or Pacific Press or your Adventist yep. Book Center. It'll be coming out uh, definitely in time for camp the camp meeting season. Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely watch for it there as well. You've been listening to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast uh, with your hosts, uh, Greg Howell, Michael Campbell. We've been interviewing Denis Fortin. Thank you for listening. Look forward to joining us each month as we explore a little bit deeper into our Adventist past. And Jesus himself said, that he did not come to do away with the law. He does not take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by it.